Do you all stand for the reading of God's word? 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. This is God's word. <clears throat> it's my privilege to introduce our speaker this morning, Doug Pollock. He has been with Athletes in Action since the Ice Age. And <clears throat> he's led us in a wonderful conference this weekend, but I did have, do have one problem with the conference, Doug. How do we follow this up? This was such an incredible conference. We had our Sunday school class, had conversations around it, and it was to a person that this is the best conference we've ever had. And so I'm in a loss as who to invite next year. Um, maybe you can give me some insights on that. But uh, Doug has spoken in 42 different countries, and he added a fifth country, New England, this weekend. <laughs> And so uh, I welcome you, Doug. Thank you. Well, I must say, of all the introductions I've ever had, that was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> hey, great to be with you here this morning and uh, this weekend. Uh, I'm just, for those of you who didn't have a chance to join us, I'm going to give you the cliff note version of kind of what I shared. Life on mission uh, ultimately begins when we offer ourselves to God and say, God, here am I. Send me. And I shared the story of a 96-year-old woman who made it painfully clear where mission begins. She says, anywhere my two feet are planted. God's intention for each of us is that we would live a life on mission. That's really not an option for those who've been called out of the world, and God has put his Holy Spirit in us. But how do we do that? How do we engage this ever-changing world with the never-changing message and the good news of the gospel? And this weekend we've been talking about that in practical, doable, and authentic ways, and I think a lot of you probably feel like you uh, went back to college because I kept offering tests throughout the weekend. We had the awareness test, the listening test. But, tell you, but to tell you the truth, this is the most important test you'll take today, the Jesus test. We talked about what it looked like to offer our eyes to God. In Romans 12:1, offering our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. We talked about what it looks like to offer our hands, our ears, and our minds as we ask great questions to engage the people around us. But today, we're going to really get to the heart of the matter. Because I think if you study the Bible very long, you have to conclude that to God, our hearts, your heart, my heart, is really the heart of the matter. We're going to take the Jesus test. And you might be wondering... Uh, I promised everybody that I would explain to them why uh, I'm offering all these tests and I actually want to blame my father-in-law who, I wish he were here with me. He's no longer 
Here he's looking down from the balcony of heaven because he was the president of a company. But he ultimately ran his company to an audience of one. He ultimately wanted to please his Lord and Savior, and he ran that company in such a way that he wanted to point people to Jesus. And I wish he were here today to share what his life on mission looked like. I think a lot of you would profit from it. But one day we were having a conversation that was really interesting. We always had great spiritual conversations. And one day we were talking, and out of the blue he just said, Doug, can you think of any other institution other than the church that regularly dispenses large sums of information but never gives any tests? And I start thinking about that. I, you know, I, I went to three different universities, you know, multiple graduate work, and I never was in a class where the professor just, you know, said, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and give you an A at the beginning of this whole thing. We're not going to have any tests. I'm just glad you signed up for the class. I'm just glad you're here. That's not the way it works, is it? We've grown up in a culture where tests are offered because tests give us an opportunity to reflect on what we've learned and what we've not learned and what we still need to learn. And I start thinking about it. I've never once been offered a test in the church. How do I really know I'm following the Jesus of the Bible? I mean, I'll be honest, it's great to see you all here, all in your places with bright, shining and smiling faces. I mean, it's great to see you, but how do I really know, and how do you know that you're following the Jesus of the Bible? You could show up for 40 years and sit in the same seat, but be missing Jesus by a mile, because you've never been challenged to maybe think about, how am I doing when it comes to following the Jesus of the Bible? So this morning, this test in my mind, is way more than an academic exercise. This is really the heart of the matter. And it's the heart of the matter when it comes to living a life on mission. There's a real problem that uh, happens often in uh, Christian circles. And one theologian put it this way, God creates us in his image and then we return the favor. We create God in the image we want him to be. We turn Jesus into who we want him to be. And I'm sure none of you have watched this movie clip I'm about to show. But I think it best illustrates a family that has turned Jesus into who they want him to be. Let's check it out together. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, or as our brothers to the south call you, Jesus, we thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of Domino's, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. I just want to take time to say thank you for my family, my two beautiful, beautiful, handsome, striking sons, Walker and Texas Ranger, or TR as we call them. And of course, my red-hot smoking wife, Carly, who is a stone-cold fox. Mm. I also want to thank you for my best friend and teammate, Cal Naughton Jr., who's got my back no matter what. Shake and bake. Dear Lord Baby Jesus, we also thank you for my wife's father, Chip. We hope that you can use your Baby Jesus powers to heal him and his horrible leg and 
it smells terrible and the dogs are always mm. bothering with it. Mm. Dear Tiny Infant Jesus. Hey, um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. Well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. You know what I want? I want you to do this grace good so that God will let us win tomorrow. Dear tiny Jesus, in your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled-up fist pawing. He was a man. He had a beard. Look, I like the baby version the best. Do you hear me? I win the races and I get the money. Ricky, finish the grace. I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo T-shirt because it says, like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party, too. Because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. I like to think of Jesus, like, with giant eagle's wings and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with, like, an angel band. And I'm in the front row, and I'm hammered drunk. Hey, Cal, why don't you just shut up? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Dear eight-pound, six-ounce, newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet, just a little infant, so cuddly, mm. but still omnipotent. Mm. We just thank you for all the races I've won and $21.2 million. Woo! 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 Ow! Love that money. Thank you for all your power and your grace, dear baby God. Amen. 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 Let's dig in. That was a hell of a grace, man. You nailed that like a split hog. I appreciate that. I'm not going to lie to you. You felt good. Despite the humor, I hope that you, as you reflect upon their picture of Jesus, that they maybe missed a few things along the way. And uh, it's really easy for us to do the same. We can have an American version of Jesus. We can have a New England version of Jesus. You know, regions of the world. I find as I travel all over the world, it's really fascinating to get snapshots of how people picture Jesus in other countries. Because it challenges me to say, wow, is that really the Jesus of the Bible? This morning, we're going to focus and lift up the name of Jesus and focus on him and what separated him from the rest of the religious leaders uh, in the day. And Jesus was pretty big on this idea because He asked a question I I think that probably is the greatest question ever asked. He asked a question in Matthew 16, 15. He says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Somebody walks up to you in the street and says, who's Jesus? My, My wife just met somebody this past week who literally had no background, never read the Bible, never heard of John 3, 16, had no concept very little concept. She's, my wife asked her, do you know what the cross? Do you, have you ever seen a cross? Yes, but I don't know what it means. In other words, she had a blank slate when it comes to who Jesus is. Who is Jesus to you? Well, online you can actually, there's a, there's a place on a website where people are asked this question and people have a chance to respond. And, and you can see some of the responses here. Uh, that people, Jesus is an imaginary friend for adults, like what Santa is to children. That's one person's picture of Jesus. Jesus is imaginary. Must have listened to the Beatles growing up. 
Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. Jesus is the worst thing to happen to mankind. You look at some of the responses here and you go, wow, where do people get these ideas about Jesus? Well, to me it's obvious that maybe we in the church are not always doing the best job of representing him well. When I travel around and I go to college campuses and I ask college students all the time, what's the one word that comes to your mind? The first word that comes to your mind when you hear the word Christian. And these are the responses I often get. Judgmental, narrow-minded, holier-than-thou, anti-intellectual, condescending, hypocritical, homophobic, intolerant. Wow, Bruce, thanks for inviting me to speak to such a group of people here today. I'm sure none of you see yourselves that way, but often people outside the church see us that way, and so we're scary to them. When we invite them to this place called church, it's scary to them because to them, we are that. And if we're going to live a life on mission and we're going to be wise towards outsiders, we need to understand that the perception they have of us is not always super positive. And I guess it just makes me wonder, where do they come up with these pictures? How do these perceptions dominate the minds, especially of so many of our young people? It's really interesting to me that we are seen as judgmental. Jesus made it very clear in Luke 12, 47. He said, I didn't come to judge the world. That's not my purpose. I came to save the world. I've got good news. I didn't come to have my finger pointed down and go, you poor, wretched person. I see what you're doing. And yet for a lot of people, when they think of us as Christians, when they think of Jesus, that's the perception they have. How does this happen? The Jesus test, I would sub submit to you, actually, there were a group of people who failed this test over and over again. They were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we're going to dive into the Scriptures right now, and we're going to look at the beginning of Jesus' ministry as He's starting His ministry, and looking at the words that he shared, because I think they have extreme significance when it comes to the topic we're looking at today. Can you imagine? You've got to think about this. You're in the audience. Jesus steps onto the stage. And one of the first things he utters in Matthew chapter 5 is this. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I think sometimes we all do this, right? We, we read the Bible, and I don't think we put ourselves into the context and think about what it would have been like to be there in the moment. And I think that's probably why a lot of us have really fallen in love with the chosen, because it's, it, they've really kind of done, tried, with holy conjecture, I think they've tried to put us into the, to, to what it would be like. And I want you to think about what it would be like if, 
If Jesus were here today and he uttered these words and, and he got it real personally, he said, listen, I'm telling each of you here this morning, if your righteousness does not surpass that of your, of your pastors here at this church, you have no hope of heaven. Some of you start to chuckle and say, well, I know our pastors here in this church. No, seriously, I mean, most people, when they evaluate their spiritual life and they're held up to maybe their spiritual leaders, they say, well, they're just a little better. I mean, that's why we pay them to be good. And if my righteousness has to surpass theirs in order to get to heaven, I'm in a world of hurt. Can you imagine how people would have responded that day when Jesus uttered these words? Well, he goes on. And I want you to realize something that ultimately how we see and react to the people in our world who do not behave and believe like us could be the truest indicator of who we really believe Jesus is. Where do I get that thought from? Well, it's kind of lifted out right here from Luke chapter 6, where Jesus spoke these words. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? In other words, church, hey, great that you come here and great that you love people that are sitting in this room, but Jesus is kind of saying, listen, the, you know that's kind of a pretty... A low bar. I'm going to raise the bar. If, if you're going to pass my test, how you treat those who do not behave and believe like you do could be a better indicator of what kind of love you have in your heart. How do you do with your enemies? How do you do with those people who persecute you? How do you do, deal with those people who don't live the way you think they should? That's what Jesus is kind of getting at here and he goes on to say, and if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as my Father is merciful. You can imagine if you were the Pharisees or the teachers of the law and you were in the audience, what was inferred in that first passage in Matthew chapter 5? Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, if they're not going to surpass that, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, their righteousness is not enough to get them into heaven. You talk about ticking some people off. I believe Jesus, ultimately, what he was doing was really differentiating or setting himself apart the religious people of the day. The Pharisees weren't too fond of that. We see in Matthew 9 here, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him as disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
On hearing this, Jesus says, here it is. Go to school, guys. You need to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, again, think, of, think if you were a Pharisee. I mean, that'd, like, <laughs> that'd be like me walking onto Harvard's campus and calling out the professors and saying, listen, you guys think you're so sharp here, you know, here at this Ivy League school, and you're, you know, you're, you're kind of lifted up as one of those schools, so prestigious. And I'm telling you, you need to go back to school. You need to go learn some things. Can you imagine how that would, would go over? But that's really what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, hey, you need to go learn what this means. Go back to school. A little later in Matthew 12, we see Jesus again. This time, they're going through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And here again, he refers back to him. He says, if you had known, in other words, I told you to go to school. I told you to go learn what this means, but you haven't figured it out yet. Because if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Over and over and over again, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are flunking the Jesus test. They're not getting it. They're missing the big idea. And it's easy to pick on them because they're not here today to defend themselves. And sometimes we need to go back to school as well. It's interesting when I travel around the country, I get this overwhelming impression that if you were to ask most people, hey, what does a good Christian look like? Well, Doug, that's pretty easy. A good Christian is someone who shows up at the right building. Hey, you guys are doing pretty good. You're already in the right place. You're hanging around the right kinds of people. Again, check, you guys are doing pretty good. You come to the right place, you hang around the right kinds of people, and you do the right kinds of things. Here's the problem with that idea. If you study the life of Jesus, he was always hanging around the wrong kinds of people at the wrong kinds of times in the wrong kinds of places. I think there's a real sense in which the idea of a good Christian is if you're a good Christian, you want to separate yourself from the world and those people who are going to pollute you and you want to spend most of your time here when the doors are open a good Christian is here at the church. And yet Jesus was always just breaking that down and busting it all up. He's saying, no, 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 no. You're, you're, the, the, the truth of the matter is how you treat the people out there who are not yet here could be the truest indicator of whether or not you've understood my message. It's not here where you get to prove it. He's saying, hey, if you love the people here in the pews, even the sinners do that. I mean, you know, if you vote the same, dress the same, and behave the same, kind of easy to, to really treat people like that 
well. But how about the people who don't? The people who disagree with you, the people who ruffle your feathers with their sexual proclivities, with the way they live their lifestyles. That's what Jesus, I think, was getting at. You see, the Pharisees, and you probably know this, that they were known as the separated ones, and they ultimately believed piety was all about excluding themselves from anyone who did not behave and believe like they did. They focused on gaining God's approval by following the law, which led to external displays of piety and what I would call checklist spirituality. They withdrew from the helpless, the sick, and the sinful. Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan kind of pointed that out. It was the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who walked right on by, but it was the Good Samaritan who stopped. And Jesus uplifted the Good Samaritan as the one who got it right. Because he demonstrated what? Mercy and compassion to someone who was beaten and stripped and left naked by the side of the road. Ultimately, the the Pharisees and the teachers of the law flunked the Jesus test because they lacked love, compassion, and mercy. That's why they failed the test. And over and over again, he continues to bring this to their attention. Ultimately, I would say the Pharisees flunked the Jesus test because of religiously transmitted disease. And I think the young man you're about to listen to totally gets it. Um, Listen to what he has to say about the difference between religion and true Christianity. What if I told you Jesus came to abolish religion? What if I told you voting Republican really wasn't his mission? What if I told you Republican doesn't automatically mean Christian, and just because you call some people blind doesn't automatically give you vision? I mean, if religion is so great, why has it started so many wars? Why does it build huge churches, but fails to feed the poor? Religion might preach grace, but another thing they practice, tend to ridicule God's people, they did it to John the Baptist. They can't fix their problems and so they just mask it, not realizing religion's like spraying perfume on a casket. See, the problem with religion is it never gets to the core. It's just behavior modification like a long list of chores. Like, let's dress up the outside, make it look nice and neat. But it's funny, that's what they used to do to mummies while the corpse rots underneath. Now I ain't judging, I'm just saying, quit putting on a fake look. Because there's a problem if people only know that you're a Christian by your Facebook. I mean, in every other aspect of life, you know that logic's unworthy. It's like saying you play for the Lakers just because you bought a jersey. Now back to the point, one thing is vital to mention, how Jesus and religion are on opposite spectrums. See, one's the work of God, but one's a man-made invention. See, one is the cure, but the other's the infection. See, because religion says do, Jesus says done. Religion says slave, Jesus says son. Religion puts you in bondage while Jesus sets you free. Religion makes you blind, but Jesus makes you see. And that's why religion and Jesus are two different clans. Religion is man searching for God. Christianity is God searching for man, which is why salvation is freely mine and forgiveness is my own. Not based on my merits, but Jesus' obedience alone. Because he took the crown of thorns and the blood dripped down his face. He took what we all deserve. I guess that's why you call it grace. And while being murdered, he yelled, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. 
because when he was dangling on that cross, he was thinking of you. And he absorbed all your sin and he buried it in the tomb, which is why I'm kneeling at the cross saying, come on, there's room. So for religion, no, I hate it. In fact, I literally resent it because when Jesus said, it is finished, I believe he meant it. When you study the life of Jesus, the thing that set him apart from the religious leaders of the day was this very message. That while the Pharisees were exclusive, Jesus was inclusive. And that's what wigged the Pharisees out. He was always moving towards people. He moved towards Zacchaeus and went to his house. He moved towards the woman at the well. He, he went to Matthew's party where there was tax collectors, prostitutes, gluttons, sinners. I'm so glad he did. Because I know he can be my friend. I've often said that if you knew what went on in my mind 24-7, you wouldn't sit here and listen to me speak. But the opposite is true too. If I know what went on in your minds, I wouldn't come here to speak to you. Jesus came to move towards us in our mess. And the, the, the decisions that we've made that have fallen short of the glory of God, he, He's inclusive. He wants to reach out to us. And that's what set Him apart when He came on the scene. Why do I call it a religiously transmitted disease? Well, I think Jesus was pointing to this too in terms of His disciples. He told his disciples in Matthew 16, 11, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's so subtle, folks. It's so subtle for you and I to think that we're just a little better off because we show up at church on Sunday morning and we hang around the right kinds of people at the right kinds of times. And when we leave this place, that odor to the people in the world, that sense of self-righteousness, that sense of being better and talking down to those, they, they get it. And they want no part of this thing called church because a lot of times, instead of us being a window to the heart of Jesus, we create a door. Instead of building bridges, I'll give you a great example of... <laughs> that happened, a pastor came up to me and said, Doug, I want to share this story with you. He said, I spent two years befriending two of the wildest girls in the high school uh, where I, uh, our church is located. And finally, after two years, they began to trust me. And I finally decided it might be time to invite them to come to church. And it so happened that, that when they came, there was a guest speaker. And... Uh, he was up front and he was sharing the good news of the gospel. And the one girl looks at her friend and says, you know, would you come up front with me? I just feel like what he's saying, I need to respond to this. I need to do something with this message. And her girlfriend looked at her and said, well, let's step outside and let's talk about it first. So they got up in the middle of the service, like I'm speaking right now, just got right up in the middle of the service and walked out, and everybody, of course, was looking at them and wondering what's going on. Well, there was an elder in the back of the room, 
And he witnessed this, and he was really put out by the fact that, you know, don't you have respect? This is God's house. You don't get up in the middle when someone's speaking and just get up and walk out. That's very disrespectful. And he walked out, and he found them out in the courtyard. And what were they doing? They were smoking cigarettes, which is exactly what you should expect from somebody who's nervous about making one of the biggest decisions of their life. But what this guy did is he, in a litany, just lit into them and said, what are you doing? Why would you pollute your temple that God has given you? Your body is a temple of God. Why would you pollute it with cigarettes? Why would you get up in the middle of our service? They were gone. They were out of there. And he said, Doug, it took me another two years to get to the point where they would even talk to me again because they figured, you know what? You invited us to that place. And if you invited us to that place, then we figure you must probably you know, endorse what went on that day. He said, it broke my heart. The difference between religion and Christianity is one, uh, religion is the achieving system, ultimately, where we try to work ourselves into God's presence. Don't know if you can see that up there or not, but it says, I get what I deserve. I must perform to earn God's love. Trying harder will produce the desired spiritual outcome. But Christianity, it's grace-based. I get what I don't deserve. Nothing I can do to make God love me any more or less. I have to rely on Christ's finished work at the cross. Religion is, offers us an opportunity to spiritual checklists, shoulds, ought tos, traditions, rules, obligations, vows, good works. We're always working to a point of acceptance, trying to earn God's favor. But in Christianity, we focus on what God has done for us. We abide in what the finished work of Christ. We trust in it. We rest in it. We're working from a point of acceptance. What religion produces often is defeat, guilt, condemnation, self-righteousness, bondage, rigidity, and joyless churchianity. Christianity, on the other hand, produces victory, security, humility, flexibility, an attitude of gratitude, compassion, and freedom. So many people confuse Jesus with religion. And the Pharisees eventually pinned a label on Jesus. It's a label I think they were actually trying to, you know, kind of denigrate who he was as a teacher. They called him a friend of sinners. Boy, I'd like to have that put on my tombstone. Doug was a friend of sinners because if, if I'm a friend of sinners, then maybe I'm just a friend of Jesus because that's what, what he, he got that label put on him and I'm like, if it was good enough for him, it's good enough for me. Well, it's time for you to take the test. And if you're wondering where this test came from, ultimately uh, I put 10 questions together in, in my book called God Space. If you haven't picked up a copy yet, there's a few left. Um, and in this test, I raised 10 questions that I think 
point to what set Jesus apart? What made him a friend of sinners? And what would it look like in this day and age for us to be called a friend of sinners? So what I'm going to ask you to do in a moment is get out a pen or a pencil, because you have it there, I believe, in your bulletin. You should find it. It's in there. It's also up here on the screen, obviously. But um, what I'm going to ask you to do in a moment is to pick a number between 1 and 10 as you read each question and uh, you know, decide your best response to that particular question and uh, put a number for each question. And then add up all your numbers and come up with a final score. And we'll talk about your final score in just a moment. But I hope you can do two things as you take the test. I hope you can multitask. Because as you take the test, there's going to be a song playing in the background by an artist who really gets the idea of, of, of Jesus being a friend of sinners. So uh, I still remember this when I took the ACT test. The teacher was up front. She said, pencils out, pencils up. We're going to start this test in three, two, one. Here we go. Jesus, friend of sinners, we have strayed so far away. We cut down people in your name, but the sword was never ours to swing. Jesus, friend of sinners, the truth's become so hard to see. The world is on their way to you, but they're tripping over me. Always looking around but never looking up I'm so double-minded A plank-eyed saint with dirty hands And a heart divided Oh, Jesus, friend of sinners Open our eyes to the world At the end of our pointing fingers Let our hearts be Led by mercy, help us reach with open hearts and open doors. Oh, Jesus, friend of sinners, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Go ahead and add up your, your scores and come up with a final score. Maybe as you took this test, maybe uh, you would be inclined to sing this song. Are you willing to admit this morning that maybe there's a little Pharisee that lives in you? 
Have you found yourself just being literally put out by people who dress a certain way, who talk the way they do, whose lifestyles, the things they choose with their life, it just appalls you and puts you out? You see, people get it. When they're around us, they kind of get the idea, hey, are you a person who, who's inviting and, and is moving towards me? Or kind of like the Pharisees, are you a person who the moment you hear somebody drop the, the F-bomb at work or GD this, immediately you're so put out, hey, would you, would you please quit talking like that? It offends my sensibilities. And pretty soon we're sending the message like, I really don't like you and I don't really want to hang out with you. Because you know what? the end of the day, right, in the heart of it all, it's your sinful lifestyle really puts me out. And so, if we were to attempt to reach out to them, we, we, our life has already been speaking so loudly and they're not open to hearing from us. Because we haven't really been bringing Jesus Here's a thought that might turn your head upside down. Have you ever stopped to consider that God might want to use our interactions with not yet Christians to save us from the Pharisee that lives in us? This happens to me quite frequently. I find myself as I move towards people and maybe they disclose something, I'm going, oh my, oh my goodness. And I'm like, Lord, you're not surprised. You would still move towards this person. This person's a lost sheep. You still care for them. You came to seek and to save that which was lost. And I find myself having to repent of the attitude in my heart. I'm going to close this morning with a story. The author actually is the one who shares it. It's not my story. Maybe some of you have read this book. Um, uh, Rosaria Butterfield and it's called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And what we're going to see here is a couple in this story that passes the Jesus test and what they did to pass the Jesus test. And we're going to pick up on this story and I'm just going to read the words right from, right from her book. It, this is not my story, this is her telling her story. She said this, as a leftist lesbian professor, I despise Christians. The word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name commanded my pity and wrath. As a university professor, she was a university pro uh, professor at Syracuse, I tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians seemed like bad thinkers to me. It seemed like they could only maintain their worldview only because they were sheltered from the world's real problems. They were also bad readers, always seizing opportunities to insert a Bible verse into a conversation with the same point as a punctuation mark to end it rather than to deepen it. The Bible says, always seemed like a mantra that invited everyone to put his or her brain on hold. 
Jesus is the answer seemed to me then and now like a tree without a root. Answers come after questions, not before. Answers answer questions in specific and pointed ways, not in sweeping generalizations. In addition to appearing anti-intellectual, and let's just say you guys are in, you know, you guys are in this area, you know, the, the Ivy League schools and so many brainiacs come to, to, uh, to New England to go to these schools Anti-intellectual is it's just the it's the attitude that so many professors on these campuses have that Christians, if they had a brain cell, would probably be starving to death. And that was her attitude. She said, Christians scared me. They appeared exclusive, judgmental, afraid of diversity, and claimed that God was on the side of those who follow the rules of the Christian lifestyle. In contrast, the lesbian community was accepting and welcoming. It was like home for me because it was safe and secure. Get ready. There's going to be somebody move into her life who understands the message that we're talking about this morning. Let's watch what they do. Stupid, pointless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus. So I launched my first attack on the unholy trinity of Jesus, Republican politics, and patriarchy in the form of an article in the local newspaper about promise keepers. The article generated so many responses that I kept a Xerox box on each side of my desk, one for hate mail and one for fan mail. But one letter I received defied my filing system. It was from a pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind and inquiring letter. Ken Smith encouraged me to explore the kind of questions I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know you were right? Ken didn't argue with my article. Rather, he asked me to defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. Notice that what Ken did is he led with questions, which is what we talked about yesterday. People often aren't ready for our answers, but they are ready for good questions. If we're going to live a life on mission, Let's be better at asking good questions. She says, I didn't know how to, <laughs> to respond to it, so I threw it away. But it engaged her in such a way that she did something later that night. She fished it out of the recycling bin and put it back on her desk, where it stared at her for the first week, confronting me with a worldview divide that demanded a response. Ken's letter punctured the intent the integrity of my research project without him knowing it. His questions were reasonable. They invited me to think in ways I hadn't before. Oh, I love that line. Oh, that you would be a church here in this area that asked people the kinds of questions that invited them to think in ways, that invited people outside the church to think in ways they've never thought before. What a cool idea. She goes on to say, with this letter, Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me a heathen. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches that Christians who mocked me on gay pride day were happy that I and everyone I loved were going to hell. That is not what Ken did. He did not mock me. He engaged me. So when his letter invited me to get together for dinner... I accepted. My motives at the time were straightforward. Surely this will be good for my research. 
something else happened. Ken and his wife Flo and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. They came to my dinner parties. They saw me function in real life. Is this starting to sound like somebody you know? Hello, church. Knock, knock, knock. Does this sound like Jesus to you? Who moved towards people who were far from Him? And did life with them? Ate at their tables? Hung out with their friends? We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They made it clear that they accepted me as a lesbian, but did not approve of me as a lesbian. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I had never heard before. He prayed as if God cared, as if God listened, as if God answered his prayers. He repented of his sin in front of me. Why would that be so important to somebody outside the church? Let me just give you a bottom line response. He kept it real. He was a real person. And so often people outside the church think that they're not good enough to hang out with us. Ken was honest about who he was and who he was not. And because Ken and Flo, check the next line out, because Ken and Flo did not invite me to church, so often we want to do that. For most people, they're not ready for that step. I knew it was safe to be friends. In other words, they developed trust. And more than likely, if we were to interview Ken and his wife, Flo, they didn't invite her to church because they knew she wasn't ready anyhow. And to do something like that would make it seem like they were, that she was their project. And so they didn't do that. They made themselves safe enough for me to do this. As we wrap her story up, listen to what happens. Ken and Flo Smith had shared the gospel with me for two years over and over again. Not in some used car salesman way, but in an organic, spontaneous, and compassionate way. They didn't pressure me or push me or interfere in my life. They were just there. Then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the middle of my world. Ken was there. Flo was there. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. God's people surrounded me not to manipulate, not to badger, but to love and to listen and to watch and to pray. And eventually, instead of resisting, I surrendered and Jesus triumphed. Would it blow you away today to know that Rosaria Butterfield is actually married now to a pastor and they are serving together a church in North Carolina. Men and women, that's the power of the gospel. That's the good news that we proclaim. That's the good news that you and I, in terms of living a life on mission, have the privilege of sharing with others outside the church. But we must pass the Jesus test. We need to learn how to offer radical acceptance, not endorsement, 
but offer radical acceptance. And as we do, people experience Jesus in a way that this magnetic pull that caused them to say, there's something about you folks that caused me to want to get to know who you know. What did they do in that story, Ken and Flo? They ultimately created God space. And for those of you who weren't here this weekend, here's a cliff note definition of what God space is. I think it's what Ken and Flo did in this story. They created a safe space for her to journey with them one meal at a time, one question at a time, one conversation at a time to where she finally came to the foot of the cross. And if you want to see more of that happen here at your church, then ultimately it begins when we leave these doors today. You've seen it before, maybe in other churches. They, a lot of churches will actually put it up on the back door. You are now entering the mission field. That's what a life on mission looks like. It's like, hey, I come here to be equipped on Sunday in my seat so that I can take it to the streets Monday through Saturday. And I'd like to close in prayer that you would do just that this week. That you would leave God's place empowered in this understanding of who Jesus is and be ready to share His good news this week. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much. I thank You for a guy named Ed who demonstrated Jesus to me as a college student, who reached out to me and who listened to my stories. Didn't freak out when I shared the kind of lifestyle I was leading. He truly brought you to me and brought me to a place where I decided to bend my knee. Thank you that I know that you are a friend of sinners and that you're not put out by all of our shortcomings that you want to move towards us would you empower us to be the kind of people who would do the same for others that we would be full of compassion and mercy that we would be just so radically accepting of those around us not endorsing their lifestyles but just that we would offer what you offered to folks that unconditional love and beckon them to into your kingdom Thanks for this time where we could freely focus on who you really are and what, how you really want us to live. We give you all the praise and the glory. And all God's people said, Amen.